Lord Jesus, we are redeemed by you. And so we thank you for the blood that was applied to us. We are blessed to be your children. Lead us now. Teach us. Open the word of God to us. Show us things we didn't know. We need a word this morning from you, Lord. We need a word from you this morning. So I pray you'll take the word of God and you'll just teach us powerfully, deeply in our inmost hearts this morning. And we trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's soul cleansing power in the blood. And there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Remember that one? That's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks as we lead into Easter. It's not just the pivot point for our year. It's not just the pivot point for us as believers. It's the pivot point for all of human history. You're either a person that realizes that or you're someone who needs to realize that. Because it is the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus by which all of human history and every person that has ever lived will ever be compared or measured. It is the work of Jesus on the cross that will define your life, or your life will be defined by your works, your goodness, your actions towards God, and it will never be enough. If you have not come to that pivot point in which the cross has taken you from where you were and who you were, to what you are now and what you can become in the blood of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the transformation of the gospel, then I'm praying that over the next couple weeks that the Holy Spirit speaks to you clearly from the Word of God as we just talk about the blood of Jesus. Now, it's funny, when we talk about the blood of Jesus, we say it in Sunday school, we talk about it in children's church, we say it from the pulpit, we sing about it a lot, but I don't think we always grasp while the blood of Jesus is so important to our salvation, and while blood itself is so critical to Scripture and the role it plays in our redemption. So we're going to do a deep dive over the next few weeks. And I promise you, I, I can't put the cookies on the bottom shelf in this one, okay? I mean, this, I need you to dig deep. I need you to, to, to have your notes, have your Scripture, have a pen, because you, you're not just going to need to follow along while we're here uh, you need to take those notes. You need to take your going deeper through the week. You need to go back over these verses for yourself because it's going to take some time for the Holy Spirit to reveal truth from you for the Word of God about the blood of Jesus and why it matters. But that's why we're starting three weeks before Easter, okay? 
So you got plenty of time. So when we get here on Easter and we celebrate not the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus, we'll get it, right? We'll get it. So I want you to open your Bibles and I want you to hang with me, okay? You got to hang with me, all right? So we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18. If you don't know where Ezekiel is, you can grab one of these blue Bibles in the pews. That's what I preach out of. And Ezekiel is on page 1312. You can flip there. You can cheat with me, okay? Ezekiel chapter 18. And what I want you to see is a couple pinpoints in salvation history that we need to understand that are critical to understanding the fullness of the gospel. And this is the very first one. Ezekiel is going to give a message to the people of God. And as he does that, one of the things you need to understand to this point is how God was moving among his people in the Old Testament up to this point. To this point, what God would do when a man or woman sinned against God, he would pour out judgment on that person. But that person's offspring would also be the recipients of that. It would flow into the next generation and even into other generations. So when there was dishonoring of the Lord, it moved down even into the children. But God also did the same with blessing. In fact, when men and women walked with him, he would bless that family and then bring that blessing down into the third and fourth generation on down. And that was what Israel was living under until we get to Ezekiel 18. And I want you to see what shifts in this prophetic word to God's people in Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, what that parable, that little proverb means is, uh, I don't know if you've ever had grapes, and uh, you go to Food Line or wherever you go, and you get the grapes, and they look beautiful. And then you take that bite, and they're terrible. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, um, but when that happens, that's one of the, it's just one of the worst tastes, right? I mean, when it's rotten, it's bad news bears, right? What he's saying is that's as if the parent would bite the grape, but the children would have the aftertaste in their mouth. It was symbolic of what was happening when God would pour out curses on a family member, and then the children would have to suffer for that. So he's referring to this proverb that was going around Israel and that the people were living under. But look what happens here, verse 3. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me. The parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. I want to encourage you to take your pen and underline the last part of that verse, verse 4. The one who sins is the one who will die. And we have to get this baseline principle that God has woven into creation. There's good news and there's bad news to it. The good news is the one who sins is actually the one that will die for their sins. So it reversed that trend where now the children have to pay for that, the grandchildren, all of that down. Now that's good news. The one who sins is the one who will die for their sin. Here's the bad news. The one who sins will die for their sin. Are you with me? God makes that promise that there is a penalty to sin. 
There is something about the damaging nature of sin on God's creation. It absolutely scars what God has made beautiful. It destroys families. It destroys homes and systems. It puts us into bondage. We have to be freed from it. And if we continue in it, it will destroy us and it will end our lives in death. The one who sins will die for their sins. We have to live in that reality. But praise God. God did something about it. So I want you to turn to the left in your Bible to Leviticus, towards the beginning of your Bible. It should be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? Leviticus 17, if you've got one of the blue Bibles, that's on page 182. You can flip there. Leviticus chapter 17, and we're going to read verse 10, 11, and 12. Leviticus is a culmination of the rules and order that God put into place so that his people could worship him appropriately. He lays down standards for his holiness, and he says, here is how that you should worship me. You should not worship in this way. You worship in this way. These are things you do because you are my set-apart people. You're not like every other nation around us. You're not pagan idol worshipers. You worship the one true God. Here's how you worship the one true God. And one of the snippets in these laws, I want you to listen to this, because this sets another bedrock for us. Leviticus chapter 17 Verses 10, it says this, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Would you take your pen and underline the second part of verse 11. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. So that sounds reasonable to us because most of us don't eat blood, but you have to understand that within this culture, blood was a very nourishing thing into their neighbors around them. They, they regularly would cook animals in blood. We don't do that. I don't think you do that, but we don't do that under normal circumstances, but they would just take a big pot of blood and they'd cook a goat in it and that was goat blood stew, whatever it was. It was very nourishing for them back then. But God said to the Israelites, no, you don't do that. If you're going to eat meat, you hang the animal and you, you drain out all the blood. You don't eat blood. And there's a reason. There's a principle. And it's because, one, life is in the blood, right? He says there the blood of animals was given for atonement. The blood of animals was given for atonement. Life is in the blood. You don't eat blood because the blood is given for atonement. Second thing is this. Blood was required for atonement because life is in the blood. So it is what is required for atonement because life is in the blood. So I know you're dying to know, Pastor Matt, what's atonement, okay? It's one of those good church words we throw around. I mean, we say it in Sunday school. We drop it in youth group. A lot of times we don't actually know what we're talking about. Atonement is an act performed so that relationship with God may be restored. It's something that is done so that a holy God who is perfect in all of his ways can again have relationship with broken humanity who are imperfect in almost all of our ways. A holy God can't tolerate sin and imperfection. In fact, it would be less than holy for him to do that. Does that make sense? It would violate his character. 
So he's got to figure out a way for sinful men to be able to have perfect relationship with the holy God. And the way he went about that was atonement. Atonement. And what's given for atonement? Blood is given for atonement. Now, let's flip to the right in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9. And while you're settling there, I want to make sure you understand how atonement took place. In the Old Testament, God's people were given very specific instructions about how atonement would take place. Once a year, they would take a lamb that was spotless, and they would bring it for their family. They would bring it to the priest at a structure called the tabernacle. And if you're not familiar with that, it was a series of curtains that separated out the normal everyday surroundings from what was meant to be holy and filled with God's presence. The priest served and worked at the tabernacle, and it had a series of curtains that would close in smaller and smaller spaces into the very middle. And in the very middle, the inner room was called the most holy place. And in that place, it really wasn't that big. It was only about four foot by four foot. In that place was a very special item. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you're not sure what that is, young people, go watch this ancient movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in it, this guy called Indiana Jones goes on this treasure hunt, and he finds the Ark of the Covenant, okay? That will give you an idea what the Ark is, okay? The Ark was this gold box that Moses was commanded to make, and in that box, he put the Ten Commandments. He put a jar of manna. Remember, manna fell from the sky. He put Aaron's rod. Remember, Aaron's rod is the one he would throw down. It became a snake and came back to a rod again. He put all that into the Ark, and God himself dwelt spiritually over that ark you couldn't touch the ark in fact the only way you could move the ark was priests had to take wooden poles and carry it on their shoulder and only the priest could carry the ark and when they were not moving when they were not traveling they would stop they would set up those tents the tabernacle and they would place the ark inside that inner tent the most holy place and here's what would happen you would bring a lamb for your family every year to that most holy place, to the tabernacle. Later, it became a temple. It became a firm building, but it still had that same place, that most holy place where the ark was. You'd bring your lamb. They would take that lamb. A priest would take it. He would slit that lamb's neck, and he would pour out the blood of that lamb, and that lamb's blood would make atonement from, for your family for one year. You had to do that one time. And then one time a year on a very special day called the Day of Atonement, shocker, the Day of Atonement, the most important priest, the high priest, would take a lamb and cut its throat and take the blood, and he by himself would go into the most holy place, the only person allowed to approach the ark unless they were moving the tabernacle, the only person that was allowed to approach the ark, he would go in, he would pour the blood over the top of the ark, and he would make atonement for all of God's people on top of that, for one year it covered their sin for one year now it was a big deal because only one person was going to go in if he didn't go in the right way they absolutely believed that god could strike him dead in fact they sewed bells into the bottom of his robe and tied a rope on his foot and you know why they did that because if people heard the bells stop tinkling that means you touched the ark in the wrong way and god struck you dead and they would take that rope that's around your, or your ankle and they would pull your dead body out and there'd be a new high priest. So it was a big deal. It was serious, right? So that's how atonement happened, but this is what atonement did. You have to get this. The blood of that animal covered sin, but it did not cleanse it. It didn't forgive it. 
It just covered it for one year so that God, in his grace, could still have relationship with his people. And here's why God allowed that to happen. Because he knew he had a plan to forgive and cleanse sin once for all. It was just coming down the road. And fortunately, our God exists outside of time. He doesn't live in 2020. He sees all time, all at one time. He lives in all time, at all present. It's a, com a complete present for him. So the death of Jesus is happening right now, even though it's not happening for us. The creation of the world for God is happening right now. He's, he is in all of those things. So he could see what was going to happen with the death of Jesus, and so he could have grace with those animals year by year. Are you following me so far? That's what Israel had to do to make atonement. Now I want you to listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about all of that and the importance of the blood of Jesus. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand and the table and its consecrated bread. And this was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things now, meaning I don't have time to talk about all the details. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room. And that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was functioning. What he's saying, that now as believers reading this on the other side of the cross, he's saying the Holy Spirit was showing you in the Old Testament that the way to God was closed in that room for all but one person every single year. That as long as the tabernacle was in place, the way to God was closed. But look at this. He says this in verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. Verse 11. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, it's not part of this creation. So you've got to follow me, because I want to explain what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. What he says is this, very interesting idea. He says the tabernacle that you would have seen on earth, the tents that Israel would have set up to house the ark of God, that was just a copy of the real tabernacle. The real tabernacle is a spiritual tabernacle that exists in the heavenly realms, in, around the throne of God up there. And, and guess what? Jesus, as the high priest, he made sacrifice not in the copy, which was the tabernacle on earth. He made sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle, the spiritual one 
that we can't see. Why does God give us a copy? Because we can't see into the heavenly realms. We don't understand how salvation works up there. But he says, I'm going to give you this earthly demonstration of what was happening so you can have a taste of what I'm doing for my people. So we look at the tabernacle and say, that's the real deal. Hebrews says, no, 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 that's the copy. The real deal is up in heaven. Are you with me? I had not lost you yet, right? You, you with, you're still with me. Okay, good. Verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all. Please underline that. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal life and eternal redemption. Excuse me. So here's what he's saying. Jesus didn't take a lamb and go into that tabernacle. Jesus was the lamb. He was the high priest. And he took his own blood. And where did he get the blood? He shed it on the cross. So when we see the physical reality of the cross, Jesus dying on that cross, there are spiritual things happening. I want you to understand that we will never understand on this side of eternity. There are thousands, there are millions of things that were happening in the spiritual realm that we only saw as we read history in the physical realm. And one of them was Jesus taking his blood as a high priest going into a spiritual tabernacle and pouring out his blood before God to make atonement, it says, once for all, for you and for me. Once for all. You ever wondered why you don't have to bring a lamb once a year to Trinity and I don't have to slice its neck and pour its blood out on our altar? You ever wonder that? That's one of the first questions I get when people get saved and start walking with the Lord. And they start reading the Old Testament. Pastor Matt, why don't we have to bring goats and lambs anymore? Here's why. There's only one lamb that matters, and it was Jesus. There's only one lamb. And praise God that my job is not to slit goat necks all day long. I, can, I just can't. I could not do that. No way. No way. I just got me a priest. I just promise you. Fortunately, Jesus covered that once for all. Once for all. The sacrifice has been made. Verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Do you get that? The covering. The covering. How much more then will the blood of Jesus Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. I want to read that again because it doesn't get better than this. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God Cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily His praises to sing? There's soul-cleansing power in the blood. And there is power, power, 
wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Let's skip down to verse 24, same chapter. And I encourage you, go back and read this on your own, but for the sake of time, let's go to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear before us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all. Underline that. See it again? But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus is coming back. But when he comes back, he's not going to go on a cross again. He's not coming to bear sin. He's coming as a king. He's coming to say, listen, this is enough. It's enough. What's happening in Ukraine and Russia, it's enough. What's happening in your government and your government, your government, with all your sinfulness, it's enough. Now I'm taking back the rightful rule of all of this. He is coming back. And when he comes, he is coming to bring salvation for those who have waited for him. And he's coming to bring judgment on those who do not know him. That is reality. And it's one we need to learn to live in. Because we have forgotten. We live as if Jesus is not coming back. He's coming back. And we have to live in that reality. Or we will fail. And God's calling on our life. Jesus is coming back. When he comes, I pray he comes to bring you salvation and not judgment. But that's up to you. Let's see what Scripture says. Chapter 10, verse 1, The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. But those sacrifices are annual reminders of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's why we don't need the sacrificial system of the Old Testament anymore. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now will you skip down to verse 11? Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by the one sacrifice he has made perfect forever 
those who are being made holy. You got to get your pen out and underline verse 14. There's some verses you just need to know. There's some verses you just have to hide in your heart. There are some verses that when Satan comes, you need to be able to pull out of your back pocket and say, no, 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 no. I knew I blew it. I know I've sinned, but I know that my Savior has covered my sin in his blood. And this is what I know. By the blood of Jesus, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, for by the sacrifice of one, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In God's sight, because of the blood of Jesus, I have been made perfect forever. And right now, by the blood of Jesus, I am being made holy. Even though I blow it day in and day out, I'm still perfect in God's sight, which is how he can keep relationship with you and you and you and me. He can still keep relationship when we blow it today and tomorrow and the next day. He can still keep that relationship because he sees on us, on us, the perfect blood of Jesus. And when he looks at your sin, he has to look through the blood of Jesus to see it. So he can stay in relationship with Matt Walton. Praise God. And to make sure that I'm close to him and intimate with him and I don't let sin harden my heart, I have to confess sin and I have to repent of sin. And when I confess and when I repent, he takes that same blood and he applies it to my heart again and I am being made holy every single day. More like Jesus, more like God, more like his standard every day. And it's not done because I'm awesome or I work hard. It's done by the blood of Jesus that is applied to my heart just like my salvation was secured. By the blood of Jesus applied to my heart. Are you with me? Are you, are you still with me? I haven't lost you yet, right? Because this has big time implications in our life. So get your notes. If you hadn't taken any notes yet, you really got to write these down. I'm going to boil all this down, all of these verses, all of this talk down to some simple truths that we've got to salt away in our heart and mind if we're going to understand the gospel and if we're going to be free. Because some of us are not free from our sin yet. I know we're not. But you can be free today. Number one, first takeaway true you have to understand without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin you cannot do enough to please god on your own you can't do enough i know some of you think well you know i think i need to get serious about this whole god this whole jesus thing so you know what i'm gonna take a few months i'm gonna stop I'm using drugs. I'm going to stop sleeping around. I'm going to stop. I'm just going to clean myself. I'm going to get everything right. And then I'm going to start attending church. I'm going to start whatever they do, getting a Bible study or whatever else it is, singing the songs, whatever. I'm going to, start, I'm going to clean this up, and we're going to get this on the right track. Wrong. Listen, that's not how it's going to happen. You don't have what it takes to please God. Isn't that a terrible thing for a pastor to say? No, it's the truth. You don't have what it takes to please God. Praise God. Jesus did everything it takes for you to please God. He shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Sin is terrible. Sin requires something to die. When someone sins, something has to die. It takes blood. Number two, the blood of animals covered sin, but the blood of Jesus cleanses it. 
The blood, of Je- or the blood of animals covered sin so they could stay in relationship with God for another year. But the blood of Jesus completely cleansed our sin once and for all. It's like this. If my kid is playing at our friend's house and she decides to dive and roll around in a mud puddle and I've got to get her home, I'll go get a blanket out of the back of my car and I'll wrap up my daughter and I'll put her in a car seat and I'll buckle her in and then I'll take her home and give her a bath. The blanket is like the covering of the blood of those animals. It allowed people to stay in that relationship with Jesus. And here's why. Because God was looking down the road to when the bath was coming. It wasn't the blanket. The blanket was a temporary fix until I can get you to the bath. And the bath is the blood of Jesus. So God said, by his grace, I'll take this blanket. We'll get you home. But it's not enough. I want your sins cleansed. I want them cleansed. And only Jesus' blood can do that. Number three, the blood of Jesus can make you perfect in the sight of God, even even as it makes you more and more holy. It does both. It doesn't do either or. It does both. It makes you perfect in God's sight. And if you think that's a license for you to go live anyway, and it just doesn't matter because the blood of Jesus is going to cover that. Listen, I would challenge you. You may not know Jesus. You may not know the gospel. You may not know what you were called to in Scripture. That's a dangerous place to be. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could live anyway. He died on the cross so you could be free. He died on the cross so you could be holy. He died on the cross so you could serve God in freedom from your sin. That's why he died. He didn't die so you can live anyway. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a you-get-to-live-now card. Welcome back to life. That's the blood of Jesus. The blood makes us perfect so that we can become more and more holy. Not in your power. We just did five weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's power that allows you to be holy and remain holy. You have to lean on Him. You don't have it. You don't have what it takes unless the Holy Spirit does it through you. But praise God. Isn't isn't this so amazing that our God does this? We blew it with our sin. He knew you blew it. He wanted a relationship with you so bad. He's the one who set the plan in motion to do everything it would take for your sin to be forgiven, that when it comes into your life again, it can be forgiven again. And then he gives you the power to actually live a different life and hold the standard that he calls you to. Isn't that a good God? That's not a God of, of judgment and wrath and hatred. That's a God of love that comes out and meets us where we are. That's our God. It's our God. Verse 4. If you haven't heard anything else, you can forget anything else I've said, but you've got to hear this. Number 4. Someone's blood is going to be shed for your sin. Will it be yours or will it be Jesus's? Somebody's blood is going to be shed for your sin. And it may be at the end of your life when you finally receive the payment for all that you've done to dishonor a holy God and judgment comes at that moment and you spend an eternity separated from him in a very real place called hell where we suffer for the consequences of our sin. Maybe you pay the price for your sin. 
but you don't have to. You don't have to. Because Jesus paid the price for your sin. He was willing to die for your sin so that you don't have to. The question is, are you going to accept that to be true? Are you going to believe in that? That's what the gospel teaches us. That a perfect God-man Jesus died on that cross and shed his blood, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And that for all of us who trust it to be true and act on it as if our life depends on it, coming to him and saying, Jesus, forgive me. Bowing your knee so that he'll be the Lord of your life and that he gets control from that point on. We enter into relationship with him and Jesus bears the penalty for our sin on that cross 2,000 years ago. That is good news. That's the good news. You don't have to die for your sin. You don't have to. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Gosh, it does not get better than that. It doesn't get better. Would you be wider, much wider than snow? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. And there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And there is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. And now I'm going to give you a chance to appropriate that in your life. Our praise team is going to come. They're going to lead us in a final song. And you have a chance to respond to what you've heard. Maybe responding means for you that you need to trust Jesus with all of your heart to forgive your sins and make him the Lord of your life. And if that's the case, I would encourage you. Our elders and their wives will be around the sanctuary. I would encourage you to speak with one of them. Talk to them about what's happening in your heart. Let them pray with you. Help them, let them solidify that decision with you this morning. Maybe you want to come down this aisle and speak to me. Maybe you want to come to this altar or grab someone near you and pray with them. But that is offered to us this morning. We can be free this morning. We can be free. So if you're a believer in Christ, I want you to worship, but I want you to pray. I want you to ask the Lord to move in people's hearts today. People need to be free. So let's stand together and let's respond to the Lord in any way he leads us this morning. Mm -hmm.